This morning I'm going to be preaching from Luke chapter 12, verses 8 to 12. I'm in continuation of what we began last week. Uh, we looked at verses 1 to 7. Um, but I'm going to read the, the whole of the passage from Luke 12, uh, verses 1 to 12. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. This is the word of God. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are our Father. But Lord, you are, are not just Daddy, you are the eternal, holy God. Help us, I pray, Lord, to have a holy and reverent awe of you so that we may know your comfort and your care. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you have come to earth to ransom us from sin and death and hell. Lord, that in all of your life, you are faithful to the holy law of God. Lord, we praise you for the way that you bore testimony to who you are in all that you did and, and all that you said. Lord, help us, I pray, to bear testimony of you so that you will bear testimony of us in the heavenly courts. Not as though we can earn our salvation, but as those who have received salvation, as those who have received the imputed righteousness of Christ. Lord, that we would show ourselves to be yours in the way that we live our lives, the way that, that we speak and, and what we do. 
Holy Spirit, we praise you for guiding us into the truths of the gospel and for regenerating our hearts and causing us to hate the sin that we once loved. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you will continue to work in our hearts. Help us, Lord, to have an ever-increasing hatred of our own sin, of all sin, but especially of our own sin. Lord, help us, I pray, to have a holy fear of, of doing or saying anything that would that, that would deny the reality of who you are, especially that keep us, Lord, from apostatizing and falling away. Lord, we know that you will do this because you have sealed all of those who are truly yours. We are sealed through the Holy Spirit of grace. Help us, Holy Spirit, in those times when we face trials, and especially in the context of, of persecution. Help us, I pray, Lord, to be faithful. Again, to testify to Christ, to who God is and who we are in God through your empowering work. Lord, as we hear this passage of Scripture, there are things that are in here that are, are hard to understand and, and even harder to believe and even harder again to do. We pray, Lord, that you will empower us. Help us, Lord, to believe. We're confident that you will accomplish what you have decreed you will accomplish through your word. And so I, I pray, confident Holy Spirit, that you will do this in your saints for your glory and for our upbuilding. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Fear is a powerful motivator. Fear often prevents people from doing what they ought and incites them to do what they shouldn't. But the problem isn't fear itself. The problem isn't fear. The problem is fearing the wrong things. Plato said that courage is knowing what not to fear. The Bible takes it infinitely further when the Bible says that it is wisdom to know who to fear. Last week I explained that we are to fight fear with fear. We overcome the fears that consume us by cultivating the holy fear of God. The person who has a proper fear of God will also have a proper faith in God. But people can have a misguided fear of God too. Having the wrong fear of God, an unbiblical fear of God, can actually keep people from faith. Many years ago, I had a housemate who was utterly convinced that he had blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And he would literally sit for days on end on the side of his bed with his head in his hands. We weren't able to help him. We reminded him of the gospel. We prayed earnestly for him. We exhorted him from God's word. We were tender. We were tough. But it was all to no avail. He eventually walked away from the faith altogether. Had he really committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Has he now committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit by rejecting the faith altogether? But it's not just unbelievers. Believers, too, need to fear this sin. Many, even many Christians, wonder whether they have committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And you may have heard people say that, that if you're afraid of it, you probably haven't done it. 
Well, I don't know whether that is true or not, and, and time will tell whether that was true for my housemate. But we need to have a biblical understanding of what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. This, this subject is, is one of the most misunderstood teachings of Jesus in all of the Gospels. We're going to see blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is real. It's possible. And it's something to be feared greatly. Now we believe the doctrines of grace. We believe the, the P in tulip. The perseverance of the saints. You cannot lose your salvation. Perhaps it's more accurately termed the preservation of the saints that God is preserving his elect. The scriptures teach that. Let me just share a few verses. John 10, 20-29 I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Or 1 Peter 1, 5 You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. One of my personal favorites, Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else at all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The scriptures teach that those who are truly saved will remain saved. So what is Jesus saying here in this passage in verses 8 in Luke 12, 12, 8 to 12, that if you deny Jesus before men, you will be denied in heaven. If you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you will not be forgiven. Well, this passage is a specific application of fighting the fear of man with the fear of God. Last week we saw in verses 1 to 3, fight the fear of the hypocrite with the fear of God's exposure. And then in verses 4 to 7, fight the fear of man's condemnation with the fear of God's condemnation. Well, this morning we're going to see in from verses 8 to 12 that we fight the fear of testifying for Christ with the fear of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. We're going to divide this into, into a further three points. Verses 8 and 9, fight the fear of testifying for Christ with the fear of Christ's unwillingness to testify for you. In verse 10, fight the fear of testifying for Christ with the fear of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And then in verses 11 and 12, the Holy Spirit will help you testify for Christ. So then let's continue to learn how to fight fear with fear. Verses 8 and 9, fight the fear of testifying of Christ with the fear of, of Christ's unwillingness to testify of you. Fight the fear of testifying of Christ with the fear of Christ's unwillingness to testify of you. Again, Jesus is helping us to fight the fear of man with the fear of God. One particular form of fear here is, is in place. It's, it's the fear of acknowledging Jesus before men. Jesus says in in verses 8 and 9, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. 
But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now, the word that's translated acknowledge here is also translated confess. Confess, which means here um, to say the same thing or to agree. It means to affirm what is true about Jesus Christ, his person, his teaching, and his works. So who Jesus is and what he says and what he does. It means to honor Jesus for who he is. Like Paul says in Romans 10.9, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Now certainly in view here is, is declaring publicly, telling others who Jesus is, that he is your Savior and that he is your Lord. You're more concerned with offending God than offending others. So you don't let fear of man keep you from telling someone about Jesus or making a stand for God or making a stand against sin. Now, baptism is a perfect example of this. You're making a stand for Christ before witnesses out of obedience to Christ and identification with Christ. You are telling everyone that you are united with Christ in his life and his death and his resurrection. You're nailing your colors to the mast. As J.C. Ryle exhorts us, we must not be ashamed to let all men see that we believe in Christ and serve Christ and love Christ and care more for the praise of Christ than for the praise of man. So you acknowledge or confess Christ, but you acknowledge or confess Christ not just with your words, but also with your actions. It's not merely a matter of orthodoxy, but also orthopraxy. It's not enough to say Jesus is Lord, but for Jesus to actually be your Lord, to submit to him, to yield your life up to him, all of it. Wherever you go, whatever you do, you do it as a Christian. Is, is that true for you? It, as you face the day and everything that you do through the, the course of the day, do you do it as a Christian? Consciously as a Christian to know that, that, this, that this day that you are living does not belong to you. It belongs to Christ. That you belong to Christ. Again, we acknowledge Christ not just by what we say, but why we do what we do. So do you see the occasions of life as occasions to acknowledge Christ? Like we saw in Luke 9, 23 and 24, it's denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus. It's losing your life for his sake. Jesus revealed who he is by what he said and what he did, and you confess Jesus as Lord by what you say and what you do as well. So testifying of Christ with, with your words of actions is something clearly we're called to do that we must do, but we also have to acknowledge that, that it can be a fearful thing to do this. It can be fearful of testifying to Christ with your, with your word and actions in the face of societal pressure, and we, we're seeing that pressure around us increasing as our culture be, becomes more and more hostile to God and to his word. But look at the promise that Jesus gives here to those who are faithful. In verse 8, 
if you acknowledge Jesus before men, he will acknowledge you before the angels of God. If we even beheld for a moment an angel in in its full glory, even just an angel, any fear of man would evaporate. But how much more in the presence of the Holy God? Brothers and sisters, when we testify to who Christ is with our words and our actions, Christ testifies for us before the Holy God, before the angels, yes, but even more so before the Holy God. And this just isn't isn't in the the so-called big moments of life. Luther at the Diet of Worms, or Esther before King Ahasuerus, and Peter and Paul, or Paul before the Sanhedrin. It's in your daily life, in what you say and what you do. And Jesus promises that when you do this, he will testify for you. And so when this, this, when it talks about his acknowledgement of us before the angels of God, this speaks of Christ's role in divine judgment. Matthew 10.32 is similar. Let's just go there for a minute to Matthew 10.32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. So again, this, this, this speaks of, of Christ and his role in, in the eschatological judgment, in end times judgment, that Christ will bear testimony in the heavenly court of those who bear testimony of him in their words and actions. Again, what a glorious promise to have Jesus bear testimony of you is to be affirmed by him in the face of divine justice and divine judgment. And Jesus' testimony is your only hope before divine justice and divine judgment, before the holy God. Now keep your finger there in, in Matthew chapter 10 as we go back to, to Luke 12. Verse 9 tells us what happens to those who don't have this hope. Jesus tells us here what happens to those who deny Christ. Those who deny Christ before men will be denied before the angels of God. Again, the image is the heavenly courtroom and divine judgment. If you deny Jesus before men, Jesus will deny you before the host of heaven. Now back to Matthew 10, 33 this time. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now the implications are the same, but Jesus is being more explicit in this place in Matthew 10. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. It, it, if it doesn't terrify you, you don't know who, know who God is. There is no more terrifying thought than to face the judgment of God without Christ testifying on your behalf. There is no more terrifying thought than that. Jesus Christ will not be the advocate of those who will not advocate for Him. 
Those who do not take up His cause will find themselves a lost cause, an eternally lost cause. The denial of Christ is the denial of God. The denial of the Son is the denial of the Father. Luke 10, 16, the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Or 1 John 2, 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Or John 5, 23, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So then as we think in here in this passage in Luke 12 about, about what it means to bear testimony of Christ and what the fear of man is in this context, there are two forms of this fear of man that, that are a particular danger to me. They're a particular danger to preachers. One is in bowing to others in what you say. And another is bowing to others in what you don't say. There's a temptation of, of trying to impress others with your words. Now, now we all face the temptation to want to sound smart and, and sound spiritual before others. But those who preach are particularly vulnerable and particularly accountable. When I was in seminary, my, my pastor in Toronto used to say that you can't lift up Christ and yourself at the same time. Now, that's true, not just for preachers, that's, that's true for all of us. You cannot lift up yourself and Christ at the same time. But the other temptation is in not saying something that you should. Now, we're all tempted with this at times as well. But again, preachers are particularly vulnerable and particularly accountable. Pray for me. Pray for me, and especially if the time comes when authorities attempt to silence what comes from this pulpit, that by God's grace, I will stand firm. But when we look at the, at the fear of man, this particular fear of man, this, this isn't really... This isn't really about holding, holding men above Christ. And in, in doing this, we're, we're, we're really, it's really about, about not holding, it's about learning to hold Christ, not above men, but above self. It's about learning to hold Christ above self. Because it's self-promotion or self-protection that keeps people from testifying of Jesus. And both are forms of the denial of Christ. Galatians 1.10 warns against both. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would, know, I would not be a servant of Christ. We have to be careful not to let the fear of man keep us from standing up for Christ. I remember when I was a school teacher in Australia, we, we weren't allowed to evangelize our students. That is, we weren't allowed to evangelize them unless they asked us a direct question. So I, I learned to frame statements so that my students would ask me questions, and then when they would ask me a spiritual question, I'd say, well, seeing as you're asking, and then I would outline the gospel for them. But there were several times when, when I knew that I had to say something in in standing up for Christ, regardless of whether they ask me a question or not. 
And I remember preaching to myself in that moment, God is bigger than education Queensland. I have to serve God before man. And so I'd go ahead and, and say something, fully expecting to be hauled into the principal's office. I spent enough time in the principal's office as a, as a child, I knew what that was like. But this did happen to me as a teacher twice. Now, thankfully, God gave me favor with the principal and I, I didn't get fired. But, but even if I did, what would have been more important in that moment? My job or honoring God? The answer is easy. Human courts render temporal judgments. God's judgment is eternal. Brothers and sisters, you will have the opportunity to testify of Christ. And it might, again, it might not be before a court. We'll talk about that later. It might just mean sitting next to that unbeliever on an airplane or talking with your neighbor over the back fence when someone at work is, is telling a dirty joke. When someone in the church is gossiping about someone else. What are you going to do? Are you going to stand up for Jesus? Or are you going to fear man? And you only have two options. Either accept Jesus or reject him. Neutrality is a myth. It's a myth. We have to admit that we have all denied Christ. We've all denied Christ at times with our words and our actions. Some of us have even done it this morning. But hear me. There is forgiveness in Christ. The denial of Christ that Jesus is speaking of here is, is not just a one-off incident. It, it, it is the bent. It's the trajectory of someone's life. Think of Peter. He denied Christ three times, even with an oath. But what happened to Peter? He repented and he was forgiven. Now, Peter wasn't then perfect. In fact, we read in Galatians of the Apostle Paul rebuking Peter for denying Christ in a different way. But Peter repented. He was forgiven and Peter is in heaven. But Judas, on the other hand, also denied Christ. Now, after Judas had done this, he remember he, he threw the money, the thirty shekels of, of silver, he, thirty pieces of silver. He threw them in, back into the temple. It says he regretted. In fact, the King James actually actually says he repented. Now, it's a very different word for repentance. This is a this is not a. True repentance, which is a change of heart, which leads to a change of behavior. This is fleshy repentance. This is, this is sorrow over the consequences of his sin. And, and, and Judas was just showing what, what he'd been like all along. Jesus accused him of being a thief from the beginning. He had never had faith in Jesus. And Judas showed that by the trajectory of his life. And he showed it at the end of his life by killing himself in despair. Judas has gone to eternal suffering in hell. Continued denial of Christ reveals the hardness of one's heart. 
the Christ denier gets what he or she wants. Separation from Christ forever. But have you denied Christ? In your words or your actions? Are you feeling conviction of that, of, of something you've done or said even at this very moment? Go to Christ. Ask Christ for forgiveness. And this afternoon, you have an opportunity to, to receive the Lord's Supper. Rejoice in the forgiveness that you have received in Christ. And ask Him to help you overcome the fear of man with the fear of God. Preach Romans 1, 16 and 17 to yourself. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Those words highlighted the truths of the gospel to Martin Luther and sparked the Protestant Reformation. May they highlight the truth of the gospel to you and it may, may it spark uh, your spiritual reformation as well. Fight the fear of testifying for Christ with the fear of Christ's unwillingness to testify for you before the Father. Grow in faith by preaching the promise that as you testify of Christ before men, Christ will testify of you before the Father. We're beginning to see a Trinitarian formulation here. The Father and the Son. Well, now with the remainder of what we're going to look at today, let's consider to, to a greater extent than we normally do the, the Holy Spirit. Verse 10. Fight the fear of testifying for Christ with the fear of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in verse 10, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. As I mentioned at the outside, this, this, this issue of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, is often misunderstood. Many sincere Christians have felt undue fear that they have committed this sin, sometimes which is referred to as the unforgivable sin. This sin is, is so serious, it is so grievous, that it cannot be forgiven. So what then is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and why is it unforgivable? Now some wrongly view this as, a, as some really serious sin, like adultery or murder. Or others saying that it's, that it's saying something false about the Holy Spirit. This is sometimes used as a hammer by those in the, the word faith movement. When you, when you criticize biblically what they are doing, they accuse you of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Still others that it is attributing miracles to Satan. And others that is, it is the decisive rejection of the Holy Spirit revealed testimony of Christ. I believe this last one is correct. That the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the decisive rejection of the Holy Spirit revealed testimony of Christ. The, the blasphemy of the, Holy, of the Holy Spirit is not just an individual sinful act, or even a, a speaking word of disrespect against the Holy Spirit. But like the denial of Christ and the gospel, it is the bent, it is the trajectory of someone's life. It is the, the conscious 
and wicked rejection of the Spirit's testimony of God's saving power and grace through Christ. Dutch theologian Herman Bavink is very helpful here in, in volume three of his, of his Reformed Dogmatics. A little bit of a lengthy quote. The sin against the Holy Spirit has to consist in a conscious, deliberate, intentional blasphemy of the clearly recognized yet hatefully misattributed to the devil revelation of God's grace in Christ by the Holy Spirit. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, therefore, does not simply consist in unbelief nor in resisting and grieving the Holy Spirit. It is a denial which goes against the conviction of the intellect, against the enlightenment of the conscience, against the dictates of the heart, in a conscience willful, sorry, in a conscious, willful, and intentional imputation of the influence and working of, of Satan, of that which is clearly recognized as God's work. So do you see what Bavink is saying here? This is, this is against the, the revelation of God's word through the Holy Spirit. This is, this is what someone who is, is very hardened in their heart against God does. So then the, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, is, it's deliberately and continually denying the Spirit-revealed truth about Jesus Christ. Remember, it is the Holy Spirit who regenerates the heart and enlightens the mind, but this person has out and out rejected the Holy Spirit. So God has hardened the rebel's heart. He or she will never receive the desire to repent and believe. Now, Matthew and Mark include Jesus' teaching on this in conjunction with the Pharisees' attributing the casting out of the demon to the work of Satan. Turn with me, if you will, to, to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 and verses 22 to 33. You'll recognize this as the, the same incident as that which you looked at in Luke 11, 14 to 23, where, where Jesus casts out the demon who had made the man mute. And, and also Matthew tells us here blind as well. Look at verse 24. The Pharisees say it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So these Pharisees are calling the good works that Jesus had done in the power of the Holy Spirit evil. So Jesus responds not only with the teaching about the house divided as we'd already looked at, but with a dire warning. Verse 32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. It is a truly unforgivable sin. Now notice here that, that Jesus doesn't say that the Pharisees had blasphemed the Holy Spirit, though some of them may actually have done that. Rather, Jesus here is warning them that they were on the edge that they were on the uh, balance on the brink of the precipice and to take another step would mean never being able to go back. This is a gracious response of those who are so opposed to him and his ministry. Were they to take that next step in the rejection of Christ, they would never be forgiven. 
Again, from, from Hermit Bavink. For this reason, the sin is unforgivable. Although God's grace is not too small and too powerless for it, yet the king, in the kingdom of sin, there are laws and ordinances placed there by God and maintained in Him. This law, in the case of this particular sin, is of such a nature that it excludes all repentance, cauterizes the conscience, obdurates and hardens the sinner once and for all, and this way makes his sin unpardonable. He calls this a, a sin against the gospel in its clearest revelation. John Calvin is similar in volume one of his Institutes of the Christian Religion. He says, with evil intention, they, with, they resist God's truth, although by its brightness they are so touched that they cannot claim ignorance. And I believe this sheds light on another often misunderstood passage. Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 6. Let's go there for a moment, please. Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. Probably very familiar with it. Hebrews 6, 4. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if then they fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now some people use this as a proof text in their mind that 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 affirms that you can lose your salvation. But again, the, the most important rule in hermeneutics is to, is to compare Scripture with Scripture. Scripture never contradicts Scripture, and you always interpret the less clear passages in light of the more clear passages. But what Jesus is teaching here, as I said in, in Luke chapter 12, I believe sheds light on, on, what is, on what the writer of Hebrews is saying in Hebrews 6. Consider the parallel. The person that is being spoken of here has been enlightened. They have experienced the blessing of the work of the Holy Spirit. They have seen firsthand the effects of the gospel. Yet they have never come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. They reject him outright. And so it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. This is a very parallel sin to what, what Jesus is, is speaking of here in Luke chapter 12. And while you're in Hebrews, let's go a couple more chapters further to, to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 and 27. Another often misunderstood passage. Hebrews 6, or 10 rather, 26 and 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And look at verse 29. They have trampled underfoot the Son of God. They have profaned the blood of the covenant. And hear this, they have outraged the Spirit of grace. And as in this context, the writer of Hebrews says in verse 31, it is a fearful hand, or rather a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Listen to John Piper. 
He says the unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is an act of resistance which belittles the Holy Spirit so grievously that he withdraws forever with his convicting power so that we're never able to repent and be forgiven. And he says in light of this that we should run from sin with fear and trembling. He says that many professing Christians today have such a sentimental view of God's justice that they never feel terror or horror at the thought of being utterly forsaken of God because of their persistence in sin. They have the naive notion that God's patience has no end and that they can always return from any length and depth of sin, forgetting that there is a point of resistance which belittles the Holy Spirit so grievously that he withdraws forever with his convicting power, leaving them never able to repent and be forgiven. This blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is very likely the same sin that leads to death that John speaks of and warns of and says there's no point in praying for the person who commits it in, in 1, John 6, uh, 1 John 2, 16 and 17. Run from sin. Run from it in the fear that in your apostasy that you, you will die, that your apostasy will lead to death, eternal death. And it's this, this holy fear of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which is the end result of, of somebody who does that, that you see that and you say, I don't want to come anywhere close to that. If, if you encounter a, a huge grizzly bear in the woods, you don't try to get as close to it as you possibly can. You, you don't try to, to walk up and, and give it a bit of a cuddle. You Flee from it. You run in the other direction. This is the attitude that we also should have in the face of, of this sin, in the face of, of all sin. But you think about the end results. You don't want that. You don't want anything close to that. So you go completely in the other direction. There's a traditional story about Inuit hunters trying to catch a wolf. The story goes that they will, will dip a, a sharp knife in, in rabbit's blood and then freeze it. They'll keep doing that until there's a, a thick layer of, of blood on the blade of the knife. It's, a, I guess, a blood sickle. And then they will stick the, that, the knife hilt down in the ice and, and freeze it there. And then they'll go away and wait. Now, a wolf, normally very wary of anything to do with man, will overcome its natural fear and its attraction to the scent. And will slowly and cautiously come up to that knife and, and give it a sniff and, and then it'll give it a lick and another lick. Before this wolf knows, it's, it's, it's bent on, on consuming the blood on this knife. The wolf thinks if, if the hunter comes, I can, I can run away. He thinks I'll run away in a moment. Just one more leg. But without even realizing it, licking down to the blade, the rabbit's blood begins to be mingled with the wolf's own blood as its tongue is lacerated on the knife. And the wolf licks and licks at the knife, now drinking its own blood till its energy is spent and the wolf dies. Sin is like that. It attracts us. It blinds us. We, we think, okay, I'll just, 
I'll just taste it. Before we know it, we're devouring it. Before we know it, we are devouring ourselves. Indulging sin will lead to your own destruction. As John Owen famously warned, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Stay away from the edge. Don't teeter on the brink of that precipice like those Pharisees did. Run in the other direction. The knowledge that there is such a sin scares you from going anywhere close to it. It scares you in the right direction. So fight the fear of testifying for Christ with the fear of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And as we've seen last week, such fear leads to faith. We've already seen that that believers who fear God rightly experience the Father's care. We've already seen that that those who fear Christ rightly receive the Son's affirmation. Now we'll focus on what those who properly fear the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit receive from the Holy Spirit. So with the time that we have left, let's look at verses 11 and 12. The Holy Spirit will help you testify for Christ. Jesus continues, verse 11. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. In the time of Jesus and the apostles, the early church and many cultures throughout history, testifying for Christ could be, could mean being dragged before political and or religious authorities. Now we'll see this explicitly when we get to Acts, where Peter and Stephen and Paul are all brought before the authorities and and all of them will be martyred for their faith. As I mentioned last week, it's only one of the original disciples of Jesus, only one of them, only the Apostle John, who was not martyred for his faith and, and he was exiled to Patmos. As the gospel spread throughout the Roman Empire, persecution soon followed. In the time leading up to and and during and and after the Reformation, countless Christians were burned at the stake for their testimony for Christ. Many Puritan pastors were expelled from their churches under the Clarendon Code. And the persecution hasn't stopped. We pray every week for the persecuted church. For those around the world, especially throughout North North Africa and the Middle East and Asia, those who testify for Christ with their words and their actions, many of whom end up testifying for Christ with their blood. If the Lord tarries, persecution will likely happen here as well. We too may be called to testify for Christ with our blood. Remember that the word that's translated martyr actually means witness. As I mentioned last week, I am not excited about the prospect of severe persecution. Frankly, I am afraid of it. I don't like pain. I don't want to suffer. I especially don't want those I love to suffer. And I'm sure you feel exactly the same way. So the question comes in, then how do you prepare for persecution? Well, first of all, you prepare for persecution by not being consumed with worry and fear of persecution. Persecution may come. 
It may come in the future, but not today. You and I have enough to deal with today. Don't make major decisions and lead your life out of fear of persecution or some other form of suffering tomorrow. Listen to Matthew 10, 34. Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Today has enough problems of its own without us worrying about tomorrow. Don't waste today or dishonor God today with fear of tomorrow. That is the first way you prepare for persecution. And, and also, as we've been discussing, you prepare for persecution by developing a holy fear of the fact that you will face God on the last tomorrow. There is a tomorrow coming after which there will be no others. Judgment day, the last day when all will give an account to God. As Christians, we do not fear being cast into hell, but we fear God who has the authority and the right to cast us into hell. As Jesus says in Luke 12, 5, fear Him. And so by cultivating a holy fear of the Lord, we, we, we know that that kind of fear will lead to faith. It will lead to confidence that, that no matter what you face, that God is with you and God is for you. Because Christ is testifying for you, your final judgment has been taken care of fully and finally and completely. Because Christ will testify for you, you can testify for Him. Whatever happens in the future, you may have to testify to Christ today. Again, it's not very likely to be in it before the, the authorities, but maybe it's over the back fence. Or on the phone with a relative. Or tomorrow at work. Maybe one day it will be in court. You may be called to suffer as a testimony for Christ. And brothers and sisters, the sufferings of Christ's followers are the clearest testimony for Christ that you can make. You do not overcome the world by fighting back. It is your flesh that wants to fight back against oppression. It's your flesh that wants you to respond in human ways to human persecution. You don't overcome the world by fighting back. You overcome the world by dying. It is not given to Christians to fight for our faith using fleshly means. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they are powerful to pull down strongholds. So our weapons are the word of God and prayer. Living a life through the grace of God that testifies to God in our words and our actions. These are the weapons of our warfare. It is the opposite of the way the world views things as so often everything that is that man thinks wise or man thinks is the right way to respond is the opposite of what God tells us to do in his word. Think of the example of Christ who suffered before the Roman authorities unjustly. If ever there was an unjust attack on a person, it was the attack on the person of Christ by the Roman authorities and and adjust from the, the Jewish ruling council. But Jesus submitted himself 
to them for your salvation and mine. And think of the Apostle Paul and, and the way that, that he responded and, and Peter under similar things. Yes, they would not deny God's word in their actions, but wherever they could, they went the extra mile and submitted themselves for the glory of God and even suffered for the glory of God. In Colossians 1.24, the Apostle Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. But wait a minute. What's lacking in Christ's affliction? What could Paul or anyone do to add to the work of Christ? Paul was adorning the gospel with his suffering. The Colossians had never seen the sufferings of Christ. And so Paul put it on display for them by suffering for Christ. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul bears testimony to, to this in his, his three times he was beaten with rods. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked three times. He was in constant danger. I think you make the case that, that next to the Lord Jesus Christ, Possibly Job. The Apostle Paul suffered more than any other human being has ever suffered. But he saw all of his suffering as a vehicle to testify for Christ. Persecution was a very real threat for the followers of Jesus and remains for many a very real threat today. And Jesus is telling his disciples that the Holy Spirit in that time will give them the help that they need. That's the next way you prepare for persecution. By trusting the Holy Spirit, by, by having that fear of blasting the Holy Spirit, by regarding the Holy Spirit as, as so holy in your heart that you would not want to do anything against Him, that, that you will, will learn to lean on Him and trust in Him. Look at verse 12. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you need to say. And we see this testified to, don't we, in the book of Acts as, as the apostles are, are brought before the Sanhedrin, as, as Paul is, is brought before various kings and rulers and, and as we understand that eventually before Caesar himself. They were all by God's grace taught what to say in that moment. They were enabled to respond with the testimony of Christ in their words and their actions because of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit enabling them to do what they never could have done on their own. Jesus encourages his disciples with this fact. Are you a disciple of Christ? Then the Holy Spirit will also help you. In the hour of testing, the Holy Spirit will enable you to confess your faith in Christ. Again, not just with your words, but also with your actions. As I said last week, I'm, I'm fearful as my natural response is, is to fight back. And so I'll dishonor Christ in the face of suffering. I have to trust that the Holy Spirit will enable me to respond in meekness and humility and to follow in the footsteps of Christ. You will be given, you'll be taught what to say, and you'll be given the ability to stand firm. Think of the, the Marian martyrs. We spoke last week of Bishop Hooper. That he could have, that last moment, he could have 
He could have taken the, the Roman Catholic Mass and renounced Christ. But he said, life is sweet and death is bitter, but eternal life is more sweet and eternal death more bitter. It, it's not that, that he was, was a better man than, than you or me. Bishop Hooper had the same Holy Spirit indwelling him as you do. The same Holy Spirit that indwelt Bishop Hooper dwells in you. The same Holy Spirit that indwelt Peter dwells in you. The same Holy Spirit that, that indwelt Paul dwells in you. The same Holy Spirit that indwelt and empowered Christ dwells in you. Fight the fear of human courts with the fear of God's court. And grow in confidence that in those human courts that God will strengthen you. God will empower you to obey Him. Go consciously, again, not just on those big days, but in the day-to-day of life. Go conscious that God will empower you to do what you can never do on your own. And He gets the glory. Fight fear with fear. Fight the fear of testifying for Christ with the faith that God will help you to testify for Christ. Those who have fought Fear with fear will find faith. They will know the Father's tender care, the Son's faithful affirmation, and the Spirit's empowering help. Let's pray together. Triune God, we marvel that although you, God in three persons, are holy, Holy, holy. Lord, you are infinitely separate from sinners. And Lord, you are infinitely separate from your creation. All of your attributes are holy. And Lord, we are not. The only holiness we have is the holiness that you have given to us, the holiness that you have credited to our account by setting us apart for Christ. Lord, I pray that we will live lives that show that we've been set apart for Christ in all that we do and all that we say. Help us, I pray, Lord, to to not to fear man, but to have a holy and reverent fear of you that gives way to a holy confidence that will give way to us boldly and fearlessly testifying to who you are and who we are in you. Confident. Lord Jesus, that you will testify for us in the heavenly courtroom, confident Holy Spirit, that you will empower us, Lord, to obey to the full extent, whatever that means. Help us, I pray, Lord, to go confident, not in our own strength or our own righteousness or our own anything, but standing in you and you alone. We pray this in the majestic and powerful name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen.